Hi, this is David Silverman from American Atheists, and I took a left at the valley. I know we shouldn't have to scream that we're atheists, you know. We don't have non-astrologers and all that. But with religious people taking over the world, I mean, we can either speak up or be pushed into a corner. I'm proud to be an atheist, a skeptic, a non-believer, an infidel, a heathen. I call it how I see it. I say it's ignorance and you just call it faith and unsubstantiated claims. That's something to be ashamed. I'm an atheist. 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 Coming at you from your favorite mop and bucket in the corner, this is Left of the Valley. My name is Kevin and I am your host. Joining me as usual is the spick to my span. Hi, Nancy. Oh, boy. I guess that uh, that makes me um, pretty shiny, doesn't it? <laughs> Reduced team today. It's just you and I. It is. It's kind of nice, though, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. So I, I apologize in advance for not bringing the other talent that would make Nancy's presence here even more formidable than usual. It's just me, dear. You're, just, you're stuck with me. Yeah, no, no, that's that's fun. We'll we'll get we'll do our what do you call that in dancing a pad pas de deux. You know, oh right? yeah, yeah, there we go, a pas de deux. Yeah. Here good, we are. Good call, good call. Uh, well, we got an interesting show today. We actually have an interview later on with uh, Sandra Smiley. She's actually from the Doctor Without Borders. What a group that is! Yes. You know, they're yes. fearless. They're, they, you know, they want to help humanity. And they overcome just about anything in their path to get it all done, don't they? If there is a charity, yeah, you can get behind. It yeah. really is that one. Yeah. You know, it's not they're a religious fabulous. thing. It, they're just doing fantastic work. And they're on the avant-garde of a lot of things going on in the world. Mm-hmm. But first, a little bit of chit-chat. Okay. How was your week? Not too bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, uh, the weather was nice. And of course, today we have a lot of liquid sunshine. Oh, my so <laughs> get it, getting out in that is not so much fun, but the rest of the week was pretty good. It's so bad that <laughs> even Kevin actually apparently can't get out of his driveway to make it down here. So oh, hopefully man. you got a flotation device out there, Kevin, and <laughs> hopefully you're not too wet. I may need one going home. Uh, in the news, I guess uh, they had Hurricane Matthew. Oh, talk about man. over 800 dead in Haiti right now as we speak, as we're recording this. Yeah, I think that's, I, I wonder if that's the first time I've ever heard a governor, um, and, and Governor Rick Scott, uh, stand up and give the typical warnings about being evacuated and don't get left behind. And then all of a sudden he said, and this storm will kill you. And it was like, holy cow. Yeah. I wonder if people, you know, thought maybe he's serious this time and we're not going to have to go 300 miles, spend a zillion bucks and come mm-hmm. back. And it was just a little trickle, you know, down the gutters. Well, as an American, you could you could probably relate to this a bit more. Uh, I think American ha- Americans uh, have a lot of... Uh, attachment to their own property of course because you know it's it's you know even the government cannot take that property away from yeah. them unless it's like you know a really huge war emergency so i think a lot of them are inclined to stay despite the conditions just in case of looters uh, yeah i think that's part of it but, but there were times where they said it's going to be huge this is going to everybody evacuate and it didn't turn out and i, I think people are so skeptical of government in one way or the other but mm. this one when you when you looked at the path of it on all of the weather channels it, that thing really was monstrous it yeah. still is i think it's it, it's still where is it now in georgia or South Carolina? Uh, something? Sorry, it landed in Florida and it's moving up the coast. Moving right? up, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, so we'll keep an eye on that. Apparently, right behind that one is Hurricane Nicole. 
So oh. that one might even become stronger. Yeah, right? let's Thank just, you, climate change. Yeah, I think I think we have the benefit of having pretty temperate weather where oh, we are. Yeah, we don't we sure. don't go from. But anybody who's listening in in Florida on the East Coast. We hope you you've taken cover. We hope everything is okay, and we hope you know things go well after this, and you don't have a lot of you know horrible cleanup to do. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in other news, the RCMP apologizes to women, and I think that was uh, a little bit of news that kind of escaped a lot of people. Um, there's been uh, complaints from uh, women officers and former officers that there was a culture of misogyny in the RCMP for the longest time. I think this uh, the first incident came out around 2006 mm-hmm. where somebody actually uh, uh, after uh, leaving the force she actually started suing the RCMP. Now the commissioner himself came out and basically said, "You know, you're right. We're sorry. We apologize." Well, do you think that uh, I haven't followed the, as closely as you have? Have the women accepted the apology, or are they going, you know, kind of like the snicker behind the well? The, the, there, hand. there still is a class or a class action lawsuit that will happen, and they are, the SMS right now they're saying that it will most likely cost the RCMP a hundred million dollars to settle that. So yeah. that's that's a lot of money. Uh, but I think a lot of the women are uh, satisfied with the idea of yeah, we just wanted an apology for the. Uh, misogyny that was happening in uh, in the RCMP. Now, I don't want to I don't want to defend the RCMP, but part of me sort of understands that because the RCMP, let's face it, it's almost a paramilitary organization in a way, right? It's 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 very macho, right? You you get the police force, we always get our man, and I think some of these people just took it way too far, and you should not be making women feel. Less of an officer. Well, you know, this has been pretty rampant, and I, yeah, I mean, I, I was, I was almost going to modify rampant, but no, I'll, I'll keep it. But in in most of the the first responder professions, women have had to claw their way up, and they've had to fight to stay, and they've had all the persistence, and they've they've tried everything, and still there's been this culture of uh, sexism that's constantly made it made it hard they had to work twice as hard to get half you know to to move halfway up the ladder but you know i if you want to say it's a you know paramedical uh, a paramilitary but still it comes from the top if the if the commanders say this is the way it is guys and puts his foot down and stays on top of it women have a better chance. Yes. If he turns his back and he just gives lip service, then you've got what's been happening on both sides of the border where, where they've had to sue in order to get compensation for the wrongs that have been, been done to them. Yeah, it, it tarnishes the uh, image of the RCMP. Yeah. And, uh, but I'm glad that uh, they came out and apologized to women. Oh, yeah, it's A about bit time. late, I would say, but, you know, they did nonetheless. And they did what Canadians do best. Say I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and if it and if it really goes to um, uh, equalize the the conditions and the pay, and we don't hear, you know, that this is wiped out, then let, let, let's hope the the apology then was a sincere one. I certainly yeah. hope so. Yeah. Um, apparently, also October has been designated Islamic Heritage Month in Ontario. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Okay. Well, are there other heritage months in Ontario, and this one was just I don't know. Added I just called that off the fly. It, it kind of flew under the radar, and I'm not sure how I feel about that as 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 an atheist. Um, I mean, Islamic Heritage Month. 
you know, it's like saying Christian Heritage Month. Should it really be? I, 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 I don't like the way how it portrays Islam as a cultural thing. Just like I don't like the way Christianity or Judaism is portrayed as a cultural thing. It's a religion. It's not a culture. And I really think these things, although they, they're done with the best of intentions. So I'm you sure. think that, so if there was like a Jewish heritage month, because I'm not quite following what the I don't the like the idea okay. of, of putting a religious title, okay. Christianity, Judaism, oh, okay. whatever, whichever one, as heritage. I, I just don't think that's appropriate. And I know it's, I'm probably going against the grain here by saying that, but, you know, when you're saying, for example, you're saying, um, well, uh, I, I'm, is my Islamic culture, I'm sorry, Islam is a religion. It's not a culture. Okay. It had influence on your culture? Yes. Absolutely. But it is not the culture itself. Because that essentially basically says when you're trying to fight Islam, for example, this one here, or whether it's Christianity or whether other religion, you're essentially then giving, you've given them the idea that you're fighting the culture. And I think that's a problem. Uh, I, I think really need we need to separate the religion from the culture, whichever religion, from whichever culture. And I think things like that, although done with the best of intentions, uh, because let's face it, some people are discriminated against because they're Muslims, and it really should not happen. Uh, but I really think it's counterproductive in the long run. No, are there other, I, I'm not being familiar with what goes on in Ontario, have there been other, is, is there like a Jewish heritage month? Or? I don't know if there's a Jewish heritage month in Ontario, but I do know there was a couple of incidents where mosques were uh, kind of uh, set on fire in yeah. Ontario. So uh, I, I totally understand, you know, you, what you want to... Uh, so you think this is kind of overcompensation for whatever prejudice? <laughs> no, I just don't think it's the appropriate t- tool okay. for it, you know, um, especially the wording of it, you know. Islamic heritage, is, I, you know, I, I would have preferred something like um, Arabic heritage, you know, that, that, that's, that's cultural, okay. right? Um, French heritage, that's cultural, you know. But you've no, seen, I guess your point. If you say Christian heritage, that's not culture. That's religion. Although it has influence on your culture, it is not the culture itself. Gotcha. Anyway, and in sadder news, um, apparently the KKK is in the region. Oh, I just was, should we say gobsmacked? <laughs> I think I couldn't believe it. Well, go ahead and, and tell what's going on and then... Well, uh, apparently apparently, right here in uh, uh, Abbotsford and uh, Mission... And around Maple Ridge, people have been fighting uh, flyers, uh, sending little Ziploc bags. It added a bit of rice, so it would add weight. And uh, the uh, police thinks they were essentially tossed by a car out, out of a car window, um, asking people to come and join the KKK and help them in their struggle for saving the white race, whatever that means. Unbelievable. I mean, there's no presence here. There's no... There, there was a background of KKK in the 30s, and then the conservatives threw them out, and that was in Alberta. Mm-hmm. But there really wasn't a presence. So what, what is driving it? Oh, unless it's, it's a prank, which is a horrible kind of a prank for people to, uh, you know, to even think about. But it, it totally it, is. Uh, I think that these things. Uh, um, I've always said, you know, I've been saying this for for years now, and you've heard me say this. Abbotsford is just on the border. And Abbotsford, especially around here being extremely conservative, is there's a high influence coming from the states. And here as atheists, we've been debating whether or not there's a lot of creationism coming across the border. And 
this kind of stuff, I, I think, it's my personal opinion, I think actually emanates from the U.S. Everything that's been going on in the U.S., you know, they're trying to find foothold here in Abbotsford first. You know, it's not, you won't, you're not going to find the KKK in Yukon, right? You're not no. going to find the KKK in Montreal, but you will find it close to the border because it's seeping across the border and coming into here. And as atheists, I think it's really our... our, our part of our job to really it's alarm it's a it's alarming yeah it's alarming and I, I didn't um find out have they did they target certain homes or did they just willy-nilly throw it out uh, you know and be offensive to every <laughs> be offensive to everybody well uh, they, apparently they threw it out to several houses but they're they, the rcmp is uh, investigating it although they're not a lot of people are not taking that all too seriously a lot of people are also saying you really shouldn't be giving them any attention because that's what they want. Um, well, the odd thing about it is that, you know, having lived in Texas for a while and knowing people who not were KKK but had that kind of prejudice of the white supremacists and things like that, they don't normally just toss information out willy-nilly and, and hope to get recruits. They usually hold a rally or, you know, they, um, they use a mailing list of, of some kind. So this is so unusual that they just throw stuff out. You know, it's just so attention-getting in, in an area like this. It's just kind of, it's kind of this, it's, it's odd. It is odd. Well, we'll, it is odd. We'll, see what, we'll see what happens. I'm glad the RCMP is taking it seriously. Though. Yeah, although I think this story is simply going to die. I think people are just not going to, they're, they're probably not going to find anything, and it's probably just going to be forgotten, and it's going to be one of those things that, you know, every so often when you, you hear people having tensions between immigration and all that, the KKK seems to resurface a bit, and then it just dies out. Not like in the States where they're yeah, we'll, constantly we'll, there. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. As long as it doesn't, I mean, this is bad enough. Oh, yeah. But, you know, as long as it doesn't escalate where people now have, uh, you know, the garages painted with, you know, Nazi uh, swastikas <laughs> yeah. and uh, crosses are put on the lawn. I mean, you just really wonder if, uh, you know, if, if this isn't getting the kind of attention they want, who who knows what the... It, it, it's just impossible to tell and, and, until either they they find them or they up their ante a little bit, which I hope they don't. But uh, but I'm glad about the response from the public though, because uh, the public is saying you know this this might not should not be ignored, but at the same time, it's like this is outrageous that this is happening. Oh, it is. There's there's not really a lot of indifference about it. You know, they're basically saying you know this is outrageous. This shouldn't be happening in this day and age. This is not Tupelo, Mississippi. That. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. okay, my dear, you're ready to go for your. I'm noodles. ready to go. Let's bring that on. And as we all know by now, it's this day in history, which is a roundup of those events and individuals that altered and illuminated the days between October the 3rd and October the 9th. October the 3rd was the start of the Albuquerque International Balloon Days, which leads to a lot of beautiful, beautiful uh, photographs of the um, balloons going up in that gorgeous sky and coming down. Balloons always bring out the kids in us. Like, <laughs> <just do. laughs> Everybody loves balloons. Everybody loves balloons. So these are these are just gorgeous. They're also decorated and so they 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 um, pull hundreds of thousands of people there every year. It's great. Um, October the third in nineteen oh four, Mary McLeod Bethune opened her first school for African American students in Daytona Beach, Florida, and that became Bethune Cookman um, University. It's a beautiful little 
little campus and a very well-respected school. October the 4th was World Animal Day, and in 1582, this is one of those funny dates, um, October the 4th, the Gregorian calendar took effect in Catholic countries as Pope Gregory the uh, 9th, no, 13th, Yeah, whatever he was. I've I've got my Roman numerals here, (laughs) and I don't have my glasses on, but it's Pope Gregory the X111. Let's (laughs) Let's just make it simple for simple people. Issued a decree stating that the day following Thursday, October the 4th, 1582, would now be Friday, October the 15th. 1582. They lost 10 days and people just absolutely freaked out. They thought the government had stolen those 10 days. They were totally disoriented. It was totally an inside job. Yeah, (laughs) it was an inside job, it was. Until, you know, they had the mayors and everybody else had to avert panic in the streets because suddenly, you know, well, you know, if we woke up, it would be like in the twilight, it would be a Rod Serling twilight zone. You know, knowing my luck, that would probably happen exactly when my vacation started. (laughs) Oh, we've missed it entirely? Yeah, (laughs) that would be my luck. (laughs) Yours and mine both. (laughs) In uh, 1976, Barbara Walters, who is now you know an icon, became the first woman co-anchor of the evening news in ABC. And not all of the anchors at that time were really thrilled that she she had to fight her way and, and prove herself. And now, of course, you know it's hard to uh, think about the news you know w- without her. And now she hosts a view. What a downfall. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 1993, another wonderful lady, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, joined the U.S. Supreme Court as the second woman justice. So we're, we're happy to have her. She's a feisty she's little thing. Feisty. I love her. Oh, she's, she weighs, what, about 12 pounds, and it's all feisty. She's almost as feisty as you. <laughs> that's, where I take, that's where I take lessons in feisty. I watch her. If Ruthie does it, by God, I'm right behind her. <laughs> October the 6th is Teacher's Day in Sri Lanka. Um, which is one day after World Teachers Day. How that happened, I haven't the slightest idea, but just worked out that way. On October the 6th, it's a cute story. On October the 6th, the curse of the billy goat, which is a sports-related curse, was supposedly placed on the Chicago Cubs in 1945. Okay. Now, this is how it happened. There was a billy goat tavern, and the owner of that tavern was a guy named... Billy Cianis, and he was asked to leave a World Series game against the Detroit Tigers at the at Wrigley Field, which is the home home park for the Cubs, because he brought his pet goat to the game, and the odor of the goat was bothering the other fans. So he was asked politely to leave, and then he was asked not so politely to leave, and then he was he and his wonderful goat were just tossed out. Oh, the days where you could bring your goat to the ballgame. <laughs> what has life become? Anyway, he was really outraged, and they, they threw him out, and he said, them cubs, they ain't gonna win no more. Which has been interpreted to mean that there would never be another World Series game won at Wrigley Field. And voila, they have not won a National League pennant since 1945. But guess what? They're in first place, and they're in a run-up with the Giants, and on the 7th, they won their first game. 
So all the Cubby fans, which are on the north side of Chicago, on the south side of Chicago, they're all Sox fans. On the north side, all the Cubbies are going crazy. Absolutely crazy. So we, we might see the end of the curse. Uh, end of the curse. Either that or they're all going to collapse in disappointment the way they do every, <laughs> every year since 1945. Hard to tell, but go Cubs. You know, Chicago would just, it would just be a, a festival there for weeks. October 7th is, October, is uh, Emergency Nurses Day. And in 1862, on that date, Royal Columbian Hospital opened the first hospital in the Cana- in British Columbia. I didn't realize they were the first hospital. Yeah, the Royal Columbia. Yeah. In 1993, Toni Morrison became the first African-American woman to win the Nobel Prize for Literature. And on October the 7th, we had our October Surprise Day. Uh-oh. Are, are you... Are sounds you, like a bad pile. Yeah. <laughs> no. are, you, are you up on your American politics to know about the October surprise? Is that something that rings a bell with you? Well, I, I, I know they, they were talking about the October surprise for the release of sensitive information, but that's about as much as I know. Okay, the October surprise um, actually uh, had its beginning in 1972, but it, it started a little earlier than that. And the reference to the month of October is because the date for national elections as well as a lot of other state and local elections, is in early November. So the events that take place in late October have a greater potential to influence the decisions of prospective voters. So one party or another will generally either pull out something that they think is triumphantly, you know, Victorious, you know, that's really going to win the voters, or something really nasty against the, and you never quite know what it's going to be, but everybody is sort of poised, and all the commentators say, Yeah, we're waiting for the October surprise. And guess what? We had our October surprise on October the 7th, and what happened was that the um, um, Washington Post released a video of our favorite Donald, our favorite guy to criticize uh. Donald Trump on a bus in California going to the um, ABC or NBC lot sitting unknowingly having an open mic on his chest and talking to other people in extremely derogatory terms about women and his sexual prowess and finally after all of the um, innuendos and, and other people saying, you know, he was lewd and lascivious. We actually heard his voice being that, and it has caused an enormous rumble as to whether or not he should continue. The Republicans are in disarray. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. It's just, and uh, I'm so, I feel so sorry for our American friends. I really do. It's yeah, and they're awful. saying that this is absolutely the worst October surprise ever. So we'll have to see. The, the The debate is tomorrow between Hillary and Donald, and this is really shaping up to be horrific and fascinating with exactly <laughs> this. And we'll find out, you know, when the Americans go to vote on And yeah, we'll find November. out which calamity they'll inflict on the rest of the world. Yeah. Whether it's Hillary O'Donnell. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So let's end on a nice note. October the 9th is National Chess Day. And in 1982, Wayne Gretzky scored his 500th goal for the Edmonton Oilers. 
um, and uh, it was followed by Gordy Howe. Um, Gordy Howe had 801 uh, um, goals, and um, uh, well, a little And um, Gretzky, Gretzky had 897 total. Yeah, that's a tr- there we go. I got it. I got it straightened out. Everybody, you were worried, but no, I got no, no, it straightened no. out. And there <laughs> were only been 42 players to score 500 goals, and um, that was uh, 32 Canadians, five Americans, two Finns, one Czech, one Swede, and one Czechoslovak. 32 Canadians. They're all Canadians. See, this is why we own this game. We do. This is why we own this game. There you go. For our American friends out south, we own the game. Yeah. Well, thank you to, to Wayne Gretzky and Gordy Howe for making it a really terrific sport. And that, dear listeners, brings to a close another passing parade of interesting, mundane, unusual, and occasionally bizarre events and people that make up this day in history. <laughs> thank you, Nancy, as usual. And we'll be right back right after this. Hi, I'm the Supreme Irreverend Dr. Randy Tyson from the Legion of Reason Diversion. Join me and my co-hosts, Christine Shelska, Twyla, and Nate Phelps, as we explore issues at the intersection of atheism, humanism, and skepticism. Topics range from alternative medicine to the interference of religion in public policy. We often have special guests to help us understand the topic du jour, Previous guests include biologist Jerry Coyne, ex-Muslim author Ali Rizvi, philosopher Peter Bogosian, and the late physicist Victor Stanger. You can watch us on the Legion of Reason YouTube channel or subscribe to the audio version through your favorite podcatcher such as iTunes or Stitcher. And don't forget to like the Legion of Reason Facebook page. Now it's time. For an AtheistAudiobooks.com sneak preview. The Happy Atheist. Disproving Christianity. After faith. Our Constitution. Baptized Atheist. The God Virus. Here is an excerpt from The Child Catchers. Rescue, Trafficking, and the New Gospel of Adoption. By Catherine Joyce. That's when the pressure turned ugly. The musics sat her down. Rianne said, and asked her what her plan to parent was. In a letter she wrote later, she listed the arguments the musics made. That placing your child for adoption was biblical, so God would bless me abundantly for my decision. That I had too much potential to be a single mother, and God had big plans for me. That they had to hold me to what I said when I first moved in, and finally that it shows you care more for your child when you place them for adoption. Rianne didn't know that consent documents for adoption are not legally binding in Washington State until after birth. Everything was screaming at me to keep my child, Rianne said. Rianne wrote the butler's pastor to request that he help mediate some agreement with the family. The social worker called the butler's and returned to Rianne with a message. They didn't want an open adoption or to send any photos, but they said to tell you, thank you for the gift. The Child Catchers, now available at atheistaudiobooks.com.
It was this point of mystery, and in gets invoked God. This, over time, has been described by philosophers as the God of the gaps. If that's where you're gonna put your God in this world, then God is an ever-receding pocket of scientific ignorance. And we're back. That was another interesting, uh, this week this week in history, this day in history. Yeah. Yeah. Some weeks are really good, and some weeks are kind of mundane. But you know, they're 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 all fascinating in their own way. I really like the story about the billy goat. About the what? The billy goat. The billy goat. Oh yeah, that's a famous <laughs> story in Chicago. I was brought up in Chicago, so you oh. know, we all know the curse of the billy goat. Yes, of course. Nancy's been brought up in <laughs> Chicago and Texas, and she's seen everything and everybody. That's right. So and don't you forget it. You'll, you'll be able to do our another brilliant moment. Brought to you by religion. Oh, yes, the weird, wacky world of religion. Did you know, I've got a nice story here. Oklahoma governor apparently declared a day of prayer for the oil industry. That's right, and I'm outraged. And you know why I'm outraged? I'm really outraged because Texas should have done it first. <laughs> Apparently, God is pretty slick. That, those Oklahomans, I mean, they're they're going to have their annual. They usually have their football game, um, Texas and Oklahoma, uh, during the Texas State Fair, you know, and it's a fierce rivalry. So it just doubly, you know, it just strikes Texans doubly bad that October that uh, the uh, the Oklahomans would declare a day of prayer before they were. Oh, yeah. Jeez. Well, apparently the governor, Mary Fallon, invites Christians to thank God for the oil industry. <laughs> She's issued an executive proclamation designated October 13th, and I want to take note for that for you next yeah. day in history there, as Oilfield Prayer Day. Uh. The official proclamation states, Where, whereas Oklahoma is blessed with an abundance of oil and natural gas, allowing the states to be as prosperous producer of these valuable resources and whereas Christian acknowledges such natural resources are created by God and whereas the oil and gas industry continues to produce countless opportunities for wealth generation for Oklahoma families and whereas Oklahoma recognizes the incredible economic community and faith-based impact demonstrated across the state by oil and gas, natural gas companies and, and whereas Christians are invited to thank God for the blessing created by the oil and natural gas industry, and to seek his wisdom and ask for protection. Now, therefore, I, Mary Fallon Governor, do hereby proclaim October 13, 2016 as Oil Field Prayer Day in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, I wonder what prompted that. I mean, I wonder if the oil and gas, you know, donated a zillion bucks to, you know, Oklahoma and... In you know, in return for you know the we all the know that it's day. quite canon in Christianity that Jesus came and killed all the dinosaurs and transformed them into oil so he can help the Republicans. Everybody knows that. Well, of course, <laughs> I I know that. 
<laughs> oh goodness. Oh man, I bet I bet Governor Greg Abbott is just furious though that that Mary beat him beat him to the the religious prayer thing. Probably, probably. <laughs> On another story, our old friend the uh, crypt keeper Pat Robertson. Oh yeah. Declared that on Halloween, your kids should be praising <laughs> the Lord, not worshiping Satan. Oh, man. <laughs> you know Halloween, the day when kids dress up, get candy, and worship Satan? Or at least that's what Pat Robinson thinks they do. In response to a question from a viewer on his 700 Club, worried that her son attending a haunted house that includes a demon DJ who encourages people to dance. Oh, <laughs> Nothing says demonic like dancing, right? Well, I've uh. seen some people dance, so they do look possessed. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Robertson warned her to stop her son before it was too late. Explain to him, he says, that th- who the devil is. Explain to him the devil wants to destroy you. The devil, maybe we should do it in his voice. Uh, the devil, you know, seeks who may that he may devour. He's out to kill you, and he's going to put everything nice in your way that's mm. going to seem like fun. Mm. There's a pleasure and sin for a season. But the answer is, Mother, don't let your babies grow up to be demon worshippers. If I can quote from Willie Nelson, don't let him do it. You know, I <laughs> This hope, is what passes for a leader in the community. I hope he lasts forever. What are we going to do without Pat Rob? Where's that? He's the source of such great, fantastical information. You know, one day we should just do a uh, just an entire show of another brilliant moment and just do <laughs> stories of Pat Robinson. We could have enough for a show, I'm sure. You think you could get th- do you think you could get through it without even, you know, throwing up or laughing so hard you couldn't say what you what you had written down? Yeah, you might have a point there. <laughs> might, that might be that might be very difficult. No, it's he's good as punctuation marks, not as a whole paragraph. Yeah. We're good. I, I just don't understand how this man is still alive. I mean, <laughs> he knows he's he, because he knows he's doing a service to atheists everywhere by, <laughs> by continually making his pronouncements. Oh, he's God. he's our gift. He's, our, <laughs> he he's totally a is. gift, <laughs> never to be repeated. Oh. <laughs> you know, um, last weekend we had a, a good show, and we had the um, our friend uh, David Silverman, mm-hmm. and uh, we we spoke that we should really do a. Uh, Spotlight on Madeline Murray O'Hare. So let's do a spotlight, uh, well deserved spotlight, on Madeline Murray O'Hare. Oh, good. Okay, I got lots here, so bear with me. Madeline Murray O'Hare was born April 13th, 1919. Uh, who She also used mo- multiple pseudonyms, her most preferred being <laughs> Miss Bible. Uh, there was a, she was an American atheist activist and founder of American Atheists, like we heard uh, David Silverman say, and the organization's president from 1963 to 1986. She created the first issue of American Atheist magazine. O'Hare is best known for the Murray versus Cutlet lawsuit, which led to a landmark Supreme Court ruling ending official Bible reading in American public schools in 1963. She's the one that took out the prayer in, in class. Oh, that was my era. So I, you know, she was a she you was were a hero. Right? She she was a heroine. Yeah, she really was. Oh, very controversial. But the most the most despised woman in the United States for mm-hmm. many many years. This came just one year after the Supreme Court prohibited officially sponsored prayer school in Engel versus Vitali. After she founded the American Atheist and won Murray versus Cutlet, she achieved attention to the extent that in 1964, Life magazine referred to her as the most hated woman in America. Mm-hmm. 
1995, O'Hare and her son and her granddaughter Robin disappeared from Austin, Texas. They were kidnapped, murdered, and mutilated by David Roland Waters, a convicted felon out on parole, and fellow career criminal Gary Carr and Danny Fry. Waters was an employee of the American Atheist from February 1993 to April 1994 and uh, as an office manager. Um, she was born in Pennsylvania to uh, Lena Christina and John Irwin Mays. And she had an older brother, John Irwin. As an infant, she was baptized into the church as a Presbyterian. In forty-one, she married uh, John Henry Roth. They separated and they both enlisted for World War II service. He was in the Marine Corps and she in the Women's Army Corps. In forty-five, she posted a uh, while posted to a cryptography position in Italy. She began a relationship with an officer, William J. Murray Jr., and married a, a married Roman Catholic who refused to divorce his wife. May's divorce, Roth adopted the name Madeline Murray and gave birth to a boy who she named William. She uh, received, in 1952, she received an LLB degree from the uh, then unaccredited South Texas College of Law. However, she failed the bar exam and she never practiced law. She and her children traveled to ship to Europe, planning to defect to the Soviet embassy in Paris and residing in the Soviet Union due to that nation promotion of state atheism. Just taking that a bit far, I think. <laughs> However, the USSR denied them entry. Murray and her son returned to Baltimore in 1960. Okay, Murray filed a lawsuit against the Baltimore City Public School System, which was that Murray versus Cutler in 1960, in which she asserted that it was unconstitutional for her son William to be required to participate in Bible readings in Baltimore Public School. In this litigation, she stated that her son's refusal to partake in Bible reading had resulted in bullying and being directed against him and his classmates by his classmate, and that administrators condoned it. After consolidation with the uh, Abington School District versus Shemp, the lawsuit reached the Supreme Court of the United States in 1963. The court voted 8 to 1 in Shemp's favor, which effectively banned mandatory Bibles. By, verse reciting in public school in the United States. So following her arrival in Austin, Texas, she founded American Atheists, a nationwide movement which defends the civil rights of non-believers, works for the separation of church and state, and addresses issues of First Amendment public policy. She acted as the group's first CEO, the public voice and face of atheism in the United States during the 1960s and 70s. She was a force of nature. Oh, totally. In a 65 interview with Playboy magazine, she described religion as a crutch and an irrational reliance on superstition and supernatural nonsense. Uh, she filed several lawsuits, and unfortunately, like I said, on, on August 27th, O'Hare and her son, John, and granddaughter Robin suddenly disappeared. The door to the office of American Atheist was locked with a typewritten note attached apparently with John's signature saying, The Murray O'Hare family has been called out to town on an emergency basis. We do not know how long we will be gone at the time of writing of this memo. When O'Hare's home was entered, breakfast dishes were sitting on the table, her diabetes medication was on the kitchen counter, and her dogs had been left behind without caregiver. In a few phone calls a few days later, the trio claimed to be they were on business in San Antonio, Texas. A few days later, John ordered $600,000 worth of gold coins from a San Antonio jeweler but took delivery of only $500,000 worth of those coins. 
Until September 27th, American Atheist employee received several phone calls from Robin and John, but neither would explain why they left or why or when they would return. While they said nothing about what was amiss, their voice sounded strained and disturbed. After September 28th, no further communication was received from the O'Hares. Ultimately, the murder investigation focused on uh, David Roland Waters, who had worked as a typesetter for American Atheist. Not only did Waters have previous conviction for violent crimes, there was also several suspicious burglary during his tenure. <coughs> oh, sorry. Shortly after his theft of $50,000 was discovered, O'Hare had written a scathing article in the members-only section of the American Atheist newsletter exposing Waters, and that's what led him to kidnap her and her family. Yeah. Um, January 2001, after his conviction and imprisonment, Waters informed the federal uh, agents that the O'Hares were buried on a Texas ranch, and he subsequently led them to the bodies. Where law enforcement excavated there, they discovered that the O'Hares' bodies had their legs dismembered with a saw. The remains exhibited such extensive mutilation and successive decomposition that identification had to be made through dental records and DNA. Um, testing in and Madeline O'Hara's case, records of a prosthetic hip from a Beckbridge hospital and a product number identified the body. Of course, Waters was arrested and found guilty of kidnapping, robbery, and murder in the O'Hare case and was sentenced to 80 years in prison. He was also ordered back to pay back $543,665 to the United Secularists of America and to the estates of Madeline Murray O'Hare and John Garth Murray and Robin Murray O'Hare. And he, after that, he died of lung cancers. Waters died of lung cancers, uh, lung cancer at the um, me, uh, Federal Medical Center in uh, Butner, North Carolina on uh, January 27, 2003. So Pretty that is horrific. The... Pretty horrific way. Uh, the, the thing about Madeline Murray O'Hare was that she was such a forceful person and had such an unpleasant way of speaking that she alienated people. Regard she could she could do the alphabet, and she would alienate everybody in the room because <laughs> because of her speaking style. And when she would appear in public in different places, she'd wear house dresses and she had gray hair and you know and so she created this image that didn't help her no, <laughs> in, no. in in the cause i mean she was not the friendly atheist she really wasn't she, no, she absolutely wasn't yeah but yet you know there was some if you, you took time to listen to what she would say oh she was brilliant she was, in terms she was bang of bang on right absolutely right. She, she had an image problem yeah, uh, she, one of my favorite was. quotes from her is uh, Anna, from her it says, an, an atheist believes that a hospital should be built instead of a church. An atheist believes that deed must be done instead of prayer said. An atheist strives for involvement in life and not escaping to death. He wants disease conquered, poverty vanished, war eliminated. Yeah, she and, was totally focused, you know, on <coughs> on doing. She wrote many books. She had a radio show. At one point, she actually established. Um, she and her husband established themselves as a church just to get the benefits, because yeah. she said that's <laughs> might as well take advantage of, yeah, of what's the system, there. If the system you know, is rigged, so, you might as well take advantage of it. Yeah, right? that's exactly. exactly. What she did. 
But um, one of these days we should we should play something, um, you know, one of her speeches or so forth, because you you need you know that's how you get the, the flavor of the of the woman. But she she was a heroine. I was a Unitarian Universalist at the time, and um, the other person who um, was along with her in the the prayer um, uh, uh, suit that went to the Supreme Court was a Unitarian. Mm-hmm. So it, um, it it struck pretty pretty close. Pretty close to home at that that point. Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, it's it's whenever we had like David Silverman, I can't help but think of that interview he's got where he's brought on Fox News and essentially, you know, they're they're talking to him and they're almost making fun of Madeline Murray O'Hara's death and saying, mm-hmm. "Well, you're an atheist, you don't care." And he says, he, he looks at them with complete disbelief. He says, well, "How could you say such a horrible thing?" And that was a powerful moment. Yeah. And you're right. You know, if we might not believe in an afterlife. And this doesn't mean I don't care about the person dying or not. But he just made him look completely like buffoons. And yeah. right there, that's when I said, "That's the man." And yeah. Well, he has a very passionate way oh, of speaking. Fantastic. He's a very strong. The interview that you did with him last week was was fantastic. You just hear, you know, uh, his feelings and his, the the logic and you know how dedicated he is to the cause. Saying, you know, every every person that we turn away from religion, it's a gift that we're giving them, you know. Yeah. And uh, yeah, totally. he's a, he's quite he's quite the guy. I'm 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 glad he's uh, he took over. <laughs> you know, he's he's the perfect guy for the job. Yeah, exactly. Now, in the meantime, we also have our nice segment. Things that make you go. Mm. Quick story on that one. Usher's not like that. <laughs> um, apparently, a pair of devout Jehovah's Witnesses has been ordered by the B.C. Provincial Court judge not to talk about religion in front of their four-year-old granddaughter. This is the case of the grandparents taking it too far. Oh, okay. The couple lost their bid for unsupervised access to the girl because they insisted on taking her to worship at the Faith Kingdoms Hall, despite the repeated objection of the child's mother. Hmm. So the case pits the Family Law Act against the Charter of Rights of Freedom. Uh, the Family Law Act states that only a guardian has parental responsibilities, including decision about religious upbringing, and the mother is the sole guardian. But the grandparents argued that forbidding them from expressing their faith in their grand, uh, to their grandchild would violate their charter right to practice their religion. The Supreme Court of Canada ruled a custodial parent cannot limit another parent's ability to discuss religion unless the child's best interests are threatened. <coughs> the grandparent wants the child to experience a religion, while mom insists that daughter can decide when she's older or not to participate in any religious practice. Way to go, mom. I bet Thanksgiving's a lot of fun at their house. (laughs) (laughs) Holy cow. Can you imagine the stress and the strain and the difficulties of communicating in that family? I feel I feel bad for the dog. I'm 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 hoping that the that they're raising the child to understand she's too little to understand now, but she must be terribly confused. But it just also shows that that's what religion do. And they they try to grab you when they're very young and she's four. Yeah. she understands that something's going on, but she doesn't Oh, yeah. Really That's what I'm saying. She must be very, very, con- very confused. So, um, according to the decision, the relationship between the well-meaning, determined grandmother and the mother has been strained from the outset, but far, the, the, but by far the biggest disagreement arose from the visit to the Kingdom Hall. Um, so visits were then limited to supervised access at home, but even at that, mom is upset to find daughter, her daughter watching a Jehovah's Witness video on her laptop. 
The grandmother insisted the child had pushed a play icon before she could stop her. Come on. <laughs> Come on. Oh. You're trying so hard. But how many times, have, I mean, we, have, we, we don't hear a lot of stories where it actually ends up in court. But we, we hear these kinds of things all, all the time, all the all time. time. and they're so, they're so difficult. And that's, you know, in our, in our group, there are a lot of, when we used to have the bigger meetings on, on Sunday for the um, Fraser Valley Atheist, Skeptics, and Humanists, there were people that would come that were, were afraid to come out as atheists because of the tensions uh, and the religious uh, training arguments that went on between their parents or the the in-laws and the children so it's a, it's a shame yeah absolutely yeah and, and uh you know uh, even in my own family i've seen that my parents are still catholics and they try they try their best to take my daughter to uh, mm-hmm. to the church and although you know she's old enough now that she she she, she can make her own choice uh she was, she's realizing now that yeah this is kind of bullshit <laughs> you know so yeah. good for her and you know it's it's Daryl Ray our friend Daryl Ray said it best you know it's it's it propagates like a virus they have they feel the need to bring the children within the faith otherwise they feel they're not good parents and it's one of the harms of religion well I I, I think very religious grandparents have the fear that when they die they're not going to see their their grandchildren in heaven. That the, it's their own children, for you know, w- w- for whatever reason, you know, moved away from their religion and taking the grandchildren, and so they're not all going to be reunited in in heaven. And that's such a, a horrible concept that they feel as though they're doing the right thing by, you know, making sh- trying to make sure that they're all going to be reunited in heaven. And it's impossible to to reach parents who feel that way with with logic and reason. Well, and you you, you said it right. Uh, their heart's in the right place. Yeah, their hearts are but in the they, right place. But they just don't think this through. I mean, I've used no. that, same argument, uh, that same argument against my parents and uh, thinking, you know, if I'm an atheist and I'm going to hell, how are you going to be in paradise happy knowing that I'm in hell, that my <laughs> myself, your son, is in hell? How are you going to make that happen? And she just came up with some bullshit answer of God wipes your memory. Well, you know, if God wipes your memory. Is it really you up there? When you think about this, you know, <laughs> oh, it's 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 such a crock. It's the more you, the longer you're an atheist, the more shamelessly inventive they get. It's, it's difficult. I, I hate to see families torn torn apart, but sometimes it's they're just it's very very difficult to mend those kinds of fences, and that it totally yeah. is. Well, now let's play the interview we have with the uh, Sandra Smiley. Sandra Smiley is a uh, director of uh, communication for the uh, Doctor Without Borders. Uh, like uh, we stated before, if there is a, a charity out there that's totally worth supporting, it's them. Oh, I'm uh, looking forward to the interview. Yeah, it, I mean they 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 they're in they're on the forefront of just about every medical battle in the world, whether it's on the battlefield or a crisis. You remember like when the Ebola virus a couple of oh, years ago, yeah. you know, they were right there on the fore- on the forefront of all this. They put themselves in harm way to to bring the best possible medicine to others. Yeah, and I think I think the uh, Doctor Without Borders, Médecins Frontières, uh, really express what it's like to want to be a doctor. You know, you want to be a doctor, a, a medicine person, because you want to help people, you want to save them, not because you want to make a big buck. And Absolutely. So let's get into that with Sandra Smiley. 
My next guest is a communication manager for Doctor Without Borders, Médecin Sans Frontières, and her job is to make sure the word is spread about her good works. She's traveled from Minsk to Maputo, Bosnia to Britain, Gambia to Guinea, fighting things like Ebola. So she's way tougher than me right there. When she's not in the field, she's kind enough to give us some time. She's a snappy dresser and a snazzy dancer. Ladies and gentlemen, Sandra Smiley. Hi, Sandra. Hi, Kevin. Thank you so much for giving us a few minutes of your time. You're very welcome, and thank you for having me. And that's quite an accolade. (laughs) Snappy dancer. Well, you know, we we don't feel too bad. We use that for everybody. (laughs) Um, Sandra, I mean, I know know the word uh, médecin sans frontières and doctor without borders is well known around the world. But um, people don't know much about the, uh, the institution itself. But before we go into that, I, would you be so kind to maybe give us a, the Reader's Digest version of who you are and your position and what you do? Sure, absolutely. So, as you said, I am a snazzy dresser and a snappy dancer. You can't handle the truth! I'm Fantastic. just kidding. Um, so, as you said, I'm a communications manager for, uh, for MSF, for Doctors Without Borders, as it's known in English. And so, in a nutshell, what I do is I travel to any of the 60 countries that MSF is working in, in any, at any given time, not all of them, obviously. And um, I go there and I work with the international and the national media to make sure that people know what's going on in those countries, what MSF is seeing, uh, what MSF is doing, and how it affects uh, the people that we're working with. Okay. Well, that's that's great introduction about yourself. Now, how about the institution itself, Médecins Sans Frontières? Can you give us a bit of a... Um, historical data of uh, what, how it started, what it's doing? Sure. Well, I guess the, the top line, the sort of headline for MSF is that it's an impartial, um, secular, apolitical organization that aims to we provide... We love you guys edit- already. Sorry? We love you guys already. Okay. <laughs> that aims to provide uh, medical care to people in the places where they need it most. So... That includes places where the healthcare system is non-functional. That includes places where there is a conflict happening. That includes places where there are massive outbreaks of disease. Um, that basically includes anywhere that people people are deprived of of, of healthcare, which we consider consider to be a right. So, just um, a bit of a historical perspective. MSF was founded in in the 1970s. Um, by a group of young doctors who had gone to Nigeria during um, the Biafran War. And they had gone to, to, to provide humanitarian aid. And once they got they were there, they were, they were horrified. I mean, you can understand what it must have been like for them. I mean, some of them were, were, were barely out of, of med- medical school from, from Europe. And what they saw, they just considered to be untenable. Um, and so they were very critical of, of the situation there and of the uh, humanitarian aid, let's say, apparatus at the time. And so what they did, essentially, is go off and, and create their own organization, which is Médecins Sans Frontières, which is Doctors Without Borders. Um, and again, MSF was created in the belief that all people have the right to, to medical care, regardless of what their gender is, their race, their religion, their political affiliation, and that the needs of, of those people outweigh um, the respect for you know, political concerns, like the respect for national boundaries. Hmm. Inconceivable! Yes, it sounds like a great organization right there already. 
So how does one volunteer for Médecins Sans Frontières? How does one get into uh, this organization? Do you have to necessarily be a doctor or...? No, not at all. Absolutely not. As you probably gathered, um, I'm, not, uh, I'm not a doctor. Um, but uh, it, it is a specialized organization and we are striving to provide the best medical assistance that we can for the people who are, um, who, who are our beneficiaries. So everybody who works with MSF is a professional in whatever field they are in. Uh, the, the big one is obviously doctors, nurses, um, other, there are other also positions available such as um, midwives, um, but there are also opportunities for people who have a, perhaps an administrative background, you know, people who are quite skilled in logistics um, and, uh, and communications officers as well. And there's absolutely, there's definitely no shortage of, 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 sorry, there's, there's certainly, yeah, there's definitely a big, a large breadth of potential positions out there for skilled people who are, who have a desire to go out and help and, and who have the qualifications. Mm. That's very interesting. And you yourself as a communications officer, and you said your job is to basically uh, go out there and communicate what Médecins Sans Frontières is doing. What do you find are your biggest challenges? Are my biggest challenges personally? I think I would say that... Besides putting up with this interview. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> I would definitely say that for me, as a communications officer, one of the biggest challenges is sort of media fatigue about certain crises. And what I mean by that is I, I get the sense that stories have a bit of a half-life, um, or a bit of a shelf-life, I should say, in that uh, the media will sort of latch on to it for a little while. Um, but of course, you know, the, the media is a, is, a, is, a, is a business, and um, their priority in large part is to, to sell papers and to, to attract viewers, and having the same stories um, on in the headlines all the time, um, you can understand that's not something that that media outlets do. So one of the challenges for people like me, communications officers, is finding ways of of making those stories hit the headlines uh, over and over and over again when it's the situation merits it. Um, and I mean, in, in the same vein, I think there are some crises also that um, that have been going on for so long. That um, that the media and the general public be kind of become inured to, or similarly, they're so complex that that people at home um, they can't really get their their heads around it. So it's easier sometimes just to look away. Hold on here a second. Are you saying that you bump into the problem of having the public saying, "Enough with this Ebola crisis. We want to hear about something else." I wouldn't say it's the public, no, um, but I would definitely say that, some, that when there are crises that are going on for, for long enough, um, that, that the media tends to, tends to pick up other stories. Wow. Yeah. I guess maybe that's a sign of the times. People, I think, are way, way more fickle about this kind of information today than they were in the days of Walter Cronkite. I mean, perhaps you could put it down to a, uh, yeah, the changing times. But I would think that, or yeah, as, as you, you make you make a reference to their you know, information overload and that sort of thing, mm. and certainly in the last couple of years there have been 
a lot, and not quite a number of very visible humanitarian crises um, that have been that have sort of moved into and moved out of the the headlines. So I, to be honest with you, I have a number of theories. I couldn't say definitively what it's all about, but certainly, um, certainly, it is a challenge, especially when it's you know it's a big news day. Other things of relative consequence are going on. It can be difficult to to sort of crowbar those those headlines about the humanitarian crises that are still ongoing into the media. Hmm. You guys are, a, like you mentioned earlier, you're a secular organization. You guys get a lot of um, pushback from uh, charities that are more religiously based. You know, do you get you get the church that comes in your in your uh, as a thorn in your side once in a while? I don't think so. No, I, I'm probably not the best place to speak to that um, that particular question. Um, because what I do, my primary interlocutors when I'm in the field, when I'm working um, with MSF, is the media um, and our beneficiaries. Um, so I think that would be more of a question for perhaps someone who is in more of a liaison, um, who works in more of a liaison capacity. But I don't think so, to be honest with you. When my impression, um, albeit you know, limited or um, perhaps not uh, terribly nuanced or educated on this matter, <laughs> would be trust that me, your 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 opinion is way more educated than mine. I'll <laughs> guarantee that. Okay. Well, my impression is certainly that in humanitarian crises, there's um, there's for the most part, great co collaboration between the different um, the different humanitarian organizations that are out there. Because I think at the core of it, again, again I say most for the most part, the, at, the, at the core of it, our objective is very similar. It's to provide assistance to people who need it. Uh, and you can understand that the, the collaborations would be many. I mean, no one organization can do everything. Uh, and generally speaking, those collaborations are very good and very fruitful. Mm. Now, um, this, this might not fall into your field either, but uh, I, I had a question that I was wondering. When you have so many crises out there, um, and you have so many, so many resources, and you guys are a wonderful organization, but there is a limit to what you guys can do, um, is there a priority on a situation with disease as opposed to a war zone? No, I don't. Not necessary. Not not a priority. And I think one of the things that MSF really tries to to avoid is certainly in speaking about crises in the media is kind of comparing them. If you see what I mean, because mm -hmm. really comparing Syria to Ebola is like comparing apples and oranges, right? Um, it's very it's very difficult to draw comparisons and to 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 choose one over the other. But definitely, as you point out, there is there are very restricted resources. Um, I shouldn't say very restricted resources. We, as with is the case with any other organization, we have a finite amount of um, of of money and manpower and all of the other necessaries to deal with. So we do have to be discerning about, about what we respond to. And certainly, you can't respond to everything, so we do have to make choices. 
Yeah, because I, I would have thought in this situation, let's take that the example you said, Syria versus Ebola. Uh, in in the war in Syria, of course, being doctor in the hospital, you know, you're still very much as at risk of uh, a friendly fire or enemy fire, as opposed to a place like Ebola which is, of course, such a deadly disease that can spread very quickly, I would have thought that you guys would have concentrated more on Ebola. But what you do, you essentially tell me is you guys answered everything. Sure, yes. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, and you bring up an interesting point, um, which is that the, the risk to staff and the risk to, to humanitarian workers, and that is something that is very interesting that you, you touch upon. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but... Uh, just in the last year, MSF has had a number of facilities come under attack um, in, a, in a number of different contexts. And that is a reality of humanitarian work today. Um, it's, I'm not sure, I mean, I haven't been doing this for long enough to be able to say that this is much different from the past, but certainly um, the, the absolute numbers are increasing in terms of you know, attack on humanitarian staff. That may be because we're increasing our exposure. That may be because there are more humanitarian actors out there. But definitely something that um, an interesting trend as regards humanitarian aid is that um, that that there seems to be a diminishing respect, let's say, for for what we call humanitarian space. That's so the Exactly the, that's interesting. It's exactly the question I was about to ask. Do you feel that today, in in a war, uh, in a world of more terrorism and guerrilla tactics instead of army on army uh, battle situations, there is less. There seems to be less of respect for the uh, medical facilities. Well, uh, yeah, as I said, we are definitely noticing a trend um, in terms of uh, attacks on on healthcare workers and and you know, and it's not just bodily harm it's also it's also you know robberies it's all, it's uh, uh, sort of property damage that sort of thing there does seem to be a lot more um, a lot more violence directed towards the, the medical mission and again I'm I haven't done a thorough analysis of this and I think it would be very difficult to parse out all the different factors and say definitively whether or not this is happening and, and why. Um, but certainly the risks to healthcare workers are, are, are quite high now and that's something that needs to be considered before um, the formations are undertaken. Mm -hmm. So in your, in your limited experience with the time you've been with uh, Ms. Saint-Saint-Pontier, what would be the worst place, the worst thing you've seen? Worst in terms of what? Well, that's a good question, I guess. Um, maybe the uh, maybe where you thought maybe were um, you you the uh, uh, Mrs. said was really sorely needed and and uh, maybe not capable of handling a situation. Mm. Or you guys so good that you just handle everything. No, I think <laughs> you really hit the nail on the head there. If I was to say that. I w if I was to, to pinpoint a very dispiriting experience, it would certainly be one of those where um, the limits of our our action was involved. Um, I can I think I would probably say um, working in e Ebola in 2000 sorry 2014 um, was probably one of the 
one of the, the things that affected me most in my career doing this. Uh, it obviously had a, um, it didn't, it, it, it obviously had, there was some resolution to that, that experience with, uh, now that you know, the Ebola, the, eventually the epidemic curve was, did tail off and um, probably uh, many lives were saved because of the intervention of humanitarian organizations and of course the hard work of the people in the countries that were affected. Um, but definitely it was, it was a very, very difficult uh, experience because basically what was happening was that we were seeing a, a disease that had never been seen on this scale before um, spread and very quickly and uh, there was no precedent. So um, all the knowledge was being created, but meanwhile, while that was happening, people were dying in um, a most abhorrent way. You know, it's interesting you talk about uh, Ebola because um, I remember very well how kind of created a bit of a panic, especially in the United States. Now, you're a communications officer. Uh, you obviously spoke to the media about the urgency and the, 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 the what you guys need to do to combat Ebola, but do you think that the local media, the American media, for example, took that story and maybe overdid it, or were they right on the money with this? No, oh, I have to be honest with you. I was out of the country, so oh. I didn't catch... <laughs> I don't think I, I was... I wasn't completely submerged in the... the in, yeah, in, in, that, in that story. I wasn't seeing it from you know, morning until night, but I definitely was getting snippets of it. Mm. And I think this was really difficult. Um, it was a really difficult situation. And I, on the media side of things, it was also uh, a bit, to some extent, or in a way, unprecedented. Um, so it was a really tough balance, at least for me, I remember, uh, for us to strike in that uh, and also reporters who were trying to report on this responsibly uh, and other organizations. It was, y you wanted to inform people, obviously. You wanted, people were, were fearful. They wanted information about this disease that actually there wasn't all that much information available about previously. So you wanted to be the purveyor of, of, of information, but by the same token, you didn't want to panic people. Um, because the, I mean, panic, as we've, as we've seen time and time again, it often has deleterious effects. It often doesn't, you know, doesn't help. Um, so there was that, that very fine line to walk. Um, and so it, it certainly was a challenge, sort of finding that middle ground between giving, giving honest and, and, and accurate information. Uh, out, but also at the same time not causing people to get um, to get concerned or too concerned, I should say. Well, let's make it a bit more cheery. My next question is, what was the best place you went to? The biggest success story you had? Um, that is a good question. <laughs> there have I've there have been many. I think every this is going to sound. I hope this doesn't sound like a cop-out answer, but it is genuine. I think to some extent or in some way, every MSF project, every MSF country where, country where MSF is working, I should say, 
there is some definitely some element of that. I'm I'm just thinking of a, an example. Um, in 2013, I was in Burundi, uh, which is a small country in Central Africa, where MSF set up a project um, that basically it's a maternity hospital where all day and all night they perform cesarean sections for women who have some sort of a you know they're at they have an at-risk pregnancy. Um, and they do other things, of course, you know, prenatal care, postnatal care, um, and dealing with uh, complicated you know, babies. Um, but that's kind of the size of it. Um, and with that model, or through that model, MSF managed to slash uh, the maternal mortality rates in that area um, by like a significant percentage. And that's just such a great story. Do you know what I mean? That's just such a great success that that many lives were saved because of these very simple measures that didn't cost very much to, to implement. Um, but yes, the, I mean, the numbers speak for themselves. And each one of the women that I spoke to who had had a cesarean section and had you know, taken the ambulance that had come out to get them and brought them there and uh, and and connected them with care. Uh, each woman was a huge, huge success story in my mind. Hmm. <laughs> that is, it's not a cop out answer at all. I think it's a good answer. So, um, do you do you feel that um, Médecins Sans Frontières and the work they do pushes research into uh, many of domains that might not get that kind of attention from a private sector enterprise? I mean, for example, I think the Ebola virus, I think, is a perfect example of that, right? I mean, after all the work that Medicine Sanfoltia did for the Ebola virus, there was much more of an interest from pharmaceutical companies, for example, to start doing vaccines about the, uh, the virus. Certainly, and I think the, the amplitude of the, the epidemic, certainly, um, that, that got the ball rolling on a lot of things that, a lot of projects that, that may have previously been on the back burner, uh, in the particular, in the case of Ebola, but definitely MSF has a um, an advocacy wing, let's say. Um, it's called the MSF Access Campaign, and its sort of raison d'etre, its reason for being, is um, is pushing for the development and the proliferation of of vaccines and other medicines that are um, that are that are adapted for field settings, let's say, for, for settings like the ones in which we work. Um, so I'm just trying to think of an example. One of the prongs of their work is uh, advocating for a cheaper, uh, <laughs> one of the big, big areas of, of work that they um, were involved in was pushing down the price of HIV and TB uh, medications years ago. Um, and now one of the things that they are looking at doing is finding a, um, or pushing for is finding um, more less invasive tests for sleeping sickness, which is a disease that is found um, in, in many African countries. And I believe for, for now is tested for with a lumbar puncture, which is an extremely invasive procedure um, that is Basically, you get a needle stuck into your back, and um, some spinal fluid is withdrawn, um, so, which is obviously not a great thing to have done when 
you're in a tropical environment, when the resources are low, when you know, there's a risk of an abscess developing in that particular area. Anyway, so that's one of the um, that's one of the big big areas of work uh, of MSF through that MSF access campaign. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. <laughs> he said it all. <laughs> exactly. So, um, where is Messina Frontier now? Where are you guys working now? So, as I mentioned, we are working in um, at any given time. Um, we're working generally around sixty countries. So, the Middle East, in Africa, in um, in Asia. Um, just about everywhere, and at the moment we've also got a couple of boats on the on the Mediterranean Sea um, coming to the aid of uh, people that you've probably heard about um, who are taking boats um, up through a, a variety of migration corridors um, and oftentimes getting into some difficulty. So we're everywhere, even on the high seas. Oh, wow. Okay, so if people want to find out more about Médecins Saint Francais and they want to make a donation, where do they go to? So the website for Canada is msf.ca, and there's lots of inf interesting information uh, about the organization, about its its foundation, um, and about its current actions. So what we're we're currently out doing uh, out there. People can also make a donation, um, and just, I don't mean for this to sound like a push, but uh, <laughs> only 3% of the donations that MSF receives here in Canada goes to administration. 82% uh, of it goes to straight to our activities, and then there's a bit of fundraising in there. So just in terms of bang for your buck, um, in terms of you know, money getting out there to the people who need it, that's that's a pretty good, pretty good percentage, I would say. Yes. Um, so I would highly encourage all our listeners to make a small donation or any donation of any kind to Médecins Sans Frontières. It certainly is worth helping these people. They're doing a fantastic job. Sandra, thank you so much for uh, being with us on the show today. Well, thank you for having me. Before pleasure. I let you go, can I get you to say, Hi, I'm Sandra Smiley of Médecins Sans Frontières, and I took a left at the valley. Absolutely. Hi, I'm Sandra Smiley of Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, and I took a left at the valley. And that was Sandra Smiley of Médecins Sans Frontières. I think we've learned a lot from this little interview. Oh, I'm sure did. Yeah, I was uh, really curious about the idea of, uh, you know, what, what is more dangerous for them when they, they pick, whether it's a war zone versus a plague, you know. Yeah. And, you know, I was kind of surprised by her answer of saying, well, we just jump into both because you have to. So that's, yeah. that's true dedication. Oh, it is. I, I respect them even more after hearing the interview. They're great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for listening to the show. Nancy, my dear, I will wish you a happy Thanksgiving. Happy oh, Canadian Thanksgiving. Oh, thank you. Same to you. And let's have a happy, let's wish a happy Thanksgiving to our friend, our friends Tyler and Kevin, who weren't yes. able to, they and were under Connie the weather. Yeah, Sarah today. So we miss, we miss you and we'll be glad to, to have But our aim is getting us. better. Pardon? We missed them, but our aim is getting better. <laughs> That's right. So watch out for next week. <laughs> Coming up, uh, we will have our friend, uh, October, right? We'll have our friend, uh, the Satanists. That'll be interesting. That'll be an interesting show. Looking forward to them. Of course, we'll have our Halloween episode with our friends from the uh, uh, Legion of Reason. Randy Tyson and Christine That'll will be, be joining fun. us and we'll be telling ghost stories around the campfire. 
In November, we'll have our friend Arn Raw. We'll also be talking about ancient aliens and our friend uh, Damien Mary at Hope and activists from uh, Facebook. Good stuff and more good stuff and more good stuff coming up. In December, we'll also have uh, Chris versus Gemma. We'll, we'll be having a debate about the uh, history of Jesus. And of oh course, boy. we can't go out without our Christmas special. Mm-hmm. My dear Nancy, thank you so much for being here as you go. You're a true trooper. It was a fun show as always. Somebody's got to keep you on track. Yeah. <laughs> glad, glad our listeners enjoyed. Hope the, the listeners enjoyed the show and please listen in next week. Exactly. And all the weeks after that for the good stuff. <laughs> See, you, you just kept me on track. Uh-oh. You want people that can follow us on Facebook, on Twitter. You can go to leftatvalley.com. You can send us a message at leftatvalley at outlook.com. Or you can send all your complaints to Nancy at Left of the Valley. <laughs> Keep them coming. Thank you, dear. Until next good, time. Good. Something to be ashamed, I'm an atheist, atheist, atheist.